You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Good morning, Trinity. Thanks for standing. Uh, the scripture reading today is from Matthew 9, 18 to 34. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But when they went away and spread his fame through all the district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. That's quite a last line there, wasn't it? I'm going to pray as we get started here. We're, we're continuing in our series called The Upside Down Kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. Thanks for joining us. I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us through your word. We confess as we come to you and come to your word that we need to hear from you. God, we, we have a lot of voices in our lives, a lot of things tugging us in different directions. Help us to fall under the authority of your word uh, and find joy and peace and healing there. And we pray, God, that you would transform us through these stories, that we might be people who have deeper and deeper degrees of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. My family and I love visiting Denny Creek. Anybody ever been there? 
few of you guys. Actually, someone who attends here, Mitch, I don't know if he's here today. He's the one who told me about it years and years ago. And what's so great about Denny Creek is, one, it's close to Seattle, uh, but it also, it's a super quick hike with a really great payoff at the end. Because when you, especially in the summertime, when you get to the creek, uh, there are these clear waters that are just running down these cascading rocks. And these rocks have gotten so smooth over time that they basically turned into natural water slides. So kids love it. They love being able to ride down these slides. It's a very special place. There's not a lot of places like it. But in between each one of those slides is actually a very normal thing, a very common thing, something you've probably experienced before. Piles of river rocks of varying degrees uh, of sizes and degrees of stability. And so you've probably done this before. You're, you're hiking up the river. You're kind of stepping on those rocks. But r- before you do, you, you test each one to make sure that it's you know, not, not going to be too shaky, right? And you might even let someone else go ahead of you and fall first so that you don't have to do that. You know what I mean? So... Uh, I would like to propose to you that this sort of scenario with these river rocks is uh, what our everyday lives are like. I'd like to propose to you, whether you're Christian or not, that we are operating out of some sort of faith in, in something pretty much 24-7. I'll give you some examples. Faith that if I take a shower, I won't stink. Right? Faith that if I eat breakfast, I won't be hungry for a while. Faith that if I go to work, I will get paid. Faith that if I speak t- to people antagonistically and in anger, they're going to respond one way, but if I res- speak to them in kindness and respect, they'll respond another way. And this kind of faith is, is it's based on cause and effect. If I've experienced uh, something working a certain way in the past, it'll probably work that way again. But the problem is, we come to Jesus, and we think he's like that. We think he's, he's like cause and effect. We think we can control how he will respond to us. Or we think that if we can't control him, if he doesn't respond the way that we were expecting or wanting, then we infer that that means that he's not dependable. But through these three stories that we will go back over today, I think we're going to learn that Jesus is both utterly dependable and utterly dynamic. So we must have faith. He's utterly dependable and utterly dynamic. And these characteristics, being dependable but also dynamic, they they might to you either be something that's magnetic, it draws you towards him, or completely repulsive. And we're going to see that in these stories as well. We're going to see people who are drawn towards Jesus as a result of these things. But we're also going to be seeing people who are drawn away from him, and it's based on where their faith lies. Whether Jesus is magnetic or repulsive to you, it's based on where your faith lies. And what I hope you're going to see through these stories is that no one and no thing is better to place your faith in than in Jesus. Let's begin with story number one. We saw it at uh, verse 18 is where it started. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So anytime we're, tra- we're reading the Bible, we're trying to understand what it's saying, we've got to look at the context. And a lot of these stories, it's helpful, they have it right there. 
while he was saying these things to them. That's, that's giving us context. Jesus has just been talking to the disciples of John about why his disciples aren't fasting. If you were here last week, you, you were with us as we talked about that, and we saw that Jesus was revealing that their question about fasting was actually a question about the kingdom of heaven. And so through different metaphors, Jesus tells them that the kingdom is coming through him, not through fasting, which is an interesting time for him to get interrupted while he's talking about heaven coming to earth through him. And that's when he gets interrupted, while he was saying these things to them. And this ruler of the synagogue comes and bows down before him like someone would bow before a king. And we know from Mark's gospel in chapter 5 that this guy's name, this, this ruler, is Jairus. And Jairus' daughter has tragically died. We also know from Mark's gospel that she was only 12 years old. And Jairus believes that if Jesus simply lays a hand on her, if he touches her, that she will be brought back to life. You might wonder, how does this work, right? How is it that just laying a hand on her could, could bring her back to life. We're never told that in the scripture. It sounds like Jesus is a magician, right? Or it actually sounds a little bit like Vision on the Marvel movies. He's my least favorite character, by the way. I can't stand the guy. But, but you might be familiar with him. He, uh, he can channel like some sort of special energy, right? Maybe Jesus is like that. That's the way it sounds. And of course, we know that movies aren't real, right? You know that? Good, okay, good. We know the movies aren't real, and so that makes the story seem fake, right? It sounds more like a dream to enjoy, right? A, a, a story to enjoy rather than something to build your life around. And yet, when we realize that Jesus is God in the flesh, and that through him heaven is coming to earth, It makes perfect sense that he has the power to bring someone to life simply by touching them. But while he's on his way there, uh, he gets interrupted again. Verse 19, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. First time I think I can remember Jesus is following someone else rather than someone following Jesus. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus gets interrupted by a woman who seems to not even intend to interrupt him, right? Did you notice that? She only wants to touch his garment, which Jewish men at that time, they would have had these these fringes, these... uh, little tassels on their garments. Perhaps she was touching one of those, and she wants to go under the radar. She wants to go unnoticed. Why? Well, I think she's so ashamed of her condition that she doesn't even want to ask for healing. She doesn't want to say a word. Mark's gospel tells us that she suffered under many physicians, meaning she went to doctor after doctor after doctor trying to find help, and she couldn't find it. That she had spent all that she had. She was broke. Spent all her money trying to resolve this problem in her life. And it says, after all of that, after all those doctors and all that money, she didn't get any better. She only got worse. Tragic. Some of you 
have experienced something like this. You, you have some sort of physical ailment that you've been trying to resolve for what feels like forever. And the pain of that, the disappointment along that journey in trying to find healing but not being able to, that pain might feel just as bad and difficult as that physical pain is. So you know a little bit of what this woman was going through. But to make matters worse for this woman, it wasn't a private experience. It was one that the entire community would have been aware of. Think about this. Can you imagine if you already felt ashamed of a problem that you had, and then you go to the grocery store, or you're walking down the street, and everyone you see knows about your problem? And you see this discharge of blood, it it would have meant that she was unclean. We've talked about this a few times recently. Meaning that she was unfit to be in the presence of others who were eating. Unfit to be worshiping with others. And we can also assume that this had something to do with her reproductive system. It's not explicit, but it does seem that way. And in that culture, your reproductive health would be seen as the sign that you were either being blessed by God or you were damaged goods. Either the fruit of your womb is showing that God loves you and is blessing you, or you're barren and God has abandoned you, and, and, and your broken womb would cause even more shame. All the rumors are circulating. What's going on with her? Why isn't God blessing her? Why is she having this problem? And so she comes to Jesus silently and covertly. And what does he do? Does Jesus shame her? Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Her faith was so strong She thought this was all it would take, just just touch his garment. And Jesus says to her, he says, your faith, it has made you well. Now, we need to stop for just a moment and, and think about this, because I think this is one of the most misunderstood and misconstrued beliefs in Christianity, the relationship between faith and healing. And part of why... I'm so passionate about addressing this, and and I want to take some time here. This is probably the biggest chunk of time we're going to spend in this message, is because I've seen the damage done by people, especially by pastors, who don't get this right. So let's think about this for a minute. Some of you guys have have heard that story that I've told of a a friend of mine named Eugene, who uh, got brain cancer. He was diagnosed when he was only 26 years old, and he fought hard for about six months, but then his battle was over and he passed away. And from the time that he was diagnosed to the time that he died, this guy was trusting God the whole way through. I mean, he had faith like I could not believe. Most of us around him had less faith than he did. But he was trusting God both for his life in the present but also his life in the future. And he didn't seem afraid at all. And he goes in uh, for surgery to remove a tumor. And the surgery is unsuccessful. And the doctors, they came out to us to tell us that Eugene was brain dead and he was being kept alive by machines. 
And I was praying with his family in the waiting room at that moment when they received that news. Of course, just broke out weeping, wailing, just awful, right? And along with his wife and a lot of his extended family, his mom was there with her pastor. And here's why I'm telling you this story. While everyone is in tears, they're, they're struggling to accept the news that they've just heard, right? The pastor stands up and rebukes everyone for not having enough faith. Just think about that. You've just lost your husband or your your son or your brother or your best friend, and a pastor tells you it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. Just think about how poisonous his words were. I was furious, of course. I stood up and started rebuking him. Um, (laughs) But this isn't how faith works, guys. It is not how faith works. But it does sound like that's what Jesus is saying here, doesn't it? That's why people misconstrue it. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said right there, her faith made her well. So let's just take it at face value. I think it's helpful to understand how the Bible talks about faith in general. Faith is not a tool to manipulate God so that he'll give us goodies, okay? God cannot be bought. In fact, it's insane to think that the all-powerful creator of the universe could be controlled by our own hand, right? I mean, it's really ludicrous. And yet, at the same time, faith does seem to play some part in compelling God to act. And so which one is it? How does this work? Well, I think it's best to think of faith uh, as what connects us to something that God is already offering, okay? Faith is something that connects us to something that God is already offering. Faith itself doesn't heal us, but healing isn't possible without it. God works through faith. So for example, think about it in the context of salvation, right? God offers salvation freely to anyone. So if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, We want to encourage you to meet him today. He offers salvation, eternal life. He offers it freely to anyone who trusts in him, without exception. But our trusting doesn't make that salvation available. It simply connects us to something that God has already promised. Healing, however, is not promised in this life, just in the one to come. Yes, Jesus can and does heal physically today. I've seen it. I'm sure some of you have seen it. But he doesn't always heal. Remember, he's dependable, but he's also dynamic. And so when we experience healing today, it's because God is giving us a foretaste of eternity where we're going to be free from suffering and sorrow and sickness But Jesus is drawing our attention to himself and he's encouraging us to trust in him, not in the outcome. He's dependable, but he's also dynamic. And in this case, Jesus heals this poor woman and and he heals her instantly. He takes away her physical pain, he takes away her social pain, her, her shame, and he makes her whole. But remember, this was just another interruption, and Jesus is still walking to where 
Jairus' daughter has recently died. Verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, pause right there for a minute. Just picture this. There's a commotion. It's, it's noisy. It's loud. There's an uproar. There's people everywhere mourning, probably weeping, crying. And the flute players have arrived, which kind of makes an assumption of like the flute players, right? The, I guess that's just who shows up when someone has passed away. I don't know. It sounds kind of amazing. I think I want some flute players to come after I passed away, just in case you guys want to know. But man, there's this crowd. It's quite a crowd that's formed, and they're filling the house. They're probably pouring out of the house. And Jesus comes into this chaos, and he says, verse 24, go away. Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus comes off kind of harsh here. We don't know what his tone was like. But it seems as though he's just asking them to go outside so that he can come in and heal this girl. And he, but he says that she's sleeping. What? Is she actually not dead and literally sleeping? Is this, or is this maybe a language thing? Sometimes the Bible uses the term sleep or sleeping as a euphemism for someone being dead. We don't really know. Maybe Jesus is talking about what he's about to do as though it's already happened. Maybe he healed her from a distance on the way there. We just don't know. But she's sick enough that everyone around at least believed that she was dead. And they didn't believe Jesus, of course, because in the second half of verse 24, they laughed at him. Wow. Wow, what a response to Jesus. Can you imagine laughing at Jesus? Maybe you can. Maybe you have laughed at Jesus. Maybe you have tried to place a little bit of faith in him, but he's so dynamic that you've begun to believe that he's not dependable, and it's a lot easier to laugh than it is to cry. In any case, these flautists, they stop playing. The, the crowd's like, Jesus is an idiot. He doesn't know what a dead person looks like. It's kind of what's probably running through their mind. They, they're, they're living in disbelief. But verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Jesus brought this girl to life. Just as he would later rise from death, never to die again. Right? He brings a glimpse of that future into the present, and she rises, foreshadowing even what will be her own future resurrection. And people can still be physically brought back to life by Jesus. It still happens today. It's rare, but it happens, right? But this is also a sign of what's to come for those who place their faith in Jesus. Here's what I want to point out to you in, in uh, John's gospel. Jesus' good friend Lazarus has passed away, and his good friends Mary and Martha, uh, Lazarus' sisters, invite him to come, and they, they're asking him to heal and to, to bring Lazarus to life. He eventually does bring Lazarus to life, but before he does, he turns to Martha and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
See, Jesus, in raising this girl, whether she had been sick, sleeping, dead, doesn't matter. All of these things would have served the same purpose in her bringing her to life, and that is to bring people to faith. That's what Jesus is talking about here. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, but do you believe? That's what he's inviting people to. Do you believe? And it made me think as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about those of you who have daughters who may not be physically dead, but who are spiritually dead. And uh, maybe over time, you've stopped believing that Jesus can bring them back to life. You've stopped praying. Praying for them feels futile. Or maybe you don't have a daughter, but a son who you're just wishing that they knew Jesus. They're spiritually dead. Someone else that you know is spiritually dead. Jesus says, whoever believes in him will be brought to life. And just as the reports of this incredible act have kind of reverberated through that entire district of Galilee, many, many people surely came to faith, and Jesus can surely raise your son or your daughter to new life. Jesus is dynamic, but he is also dependable. Story number two. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. This is, this is a faith statement. These blind men are basically saying, Jesus Christ, you are the Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world. They might be physically blind, but they have spiritual sight. And so they call on him for mercy. But what kind of mercy exactly are they calling on him for? When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Jesus enters the house of these guys who are outcasts, who are rejected, who are also unclean, and, and he knows what kind of mercy they meant when they asked for it. The mercy of physical sight. And before he heals them, he gives them yet another opportunity to profess their faith. Not just faith that he's the Messiah, but faith that he's also the healer. And he asks them a question. Do you believe that I am able, notice what he says, able to do this? He never asks them if they believe he will heal them. Do you notice that? Only if, if they believe that he is able to heal them. See, Jesus is dependable, but he is also dynamic. And the promise of his ability does not determine the promise of his activity. But yet they immediately go, yes, Lord. They're like, absolutely. No appearance of doubt in their uh, belief in his ability. But then they make a request for his activity. And I've noticed that oftentimes when we pray for someone, at least in the circles that I run in, I don't know about you. When we pray for God to heal someone, which does require a degree of faith, I mean, just praying is an act of faith. But oftentimes when, when I'm present there with people, when we're in the middle of a prayer for physical healing for someone, there seems to be an underlying belief or an underlying prayer that goes unsaid. And that is something like, Jesus, I think you might might be able to heal, 
but you probably won't. Any of you experienced this? Any of you thought this while you're praying for someone to be healed, right? I think you might be able to heal, but you probably won't. Or maybe it's even something like Jesus. I think you might be able to heal, but I'm afraid you won't. And coming to you in faith right now, it makes me feel like a fool. I don't want to get my hopes up. But Jesus is inviting us to trust him, not the outcome. He's inviting us to trust him wholeheartedly. That's why all these stories exist. They're to draw our attention to the fact that he is dependable but dynamic, that we should be placing our faith in him. And if Jesus were to come to us and ask us, do we believe, would we answer like these guys? Yes, Lord. I believe you are able. Jesus heals them, verse 29. And he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Just like that woman touched his garment, right? Jesus says their faith is the active ingredient in this healing process. Their faith is what allows them to receive the gift that Jesus is already offering. We've got to ask ourselves, are we willing to receive what Jesus offers us? They were their eyes were opened. And here's, here's where it kind of takes a weird turn. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now, doesn't this seem strange? Why does he warn them not to tell anyone? And no, I don't think that his use of the word see is Jesus making a blind pun, by the way. But, but seriously, wouldn't you think that Jesus would want people to know who he is and, and what he had done, right? Again, when, whenever we encounter something that's confusing about Jesus, we recognize, okay, this is a cue. This is an upside-down kingdom thing, and I just don't get it. I'm just, I just got to get back into the kingdom, and I'm going to start to understand what's going on here. And there seems to be a concern that Jesus often had about the timing of everything. He knows that the more that the religious leaders get wind of him doing miracles like this one, the, the closer that they will be to crucifying him. We regularly hear Jesus saying things throughout the Gospels like, my time has not yet come, right? He knows all that he needs to do before he dies for sin and rises for our salvation. And I think that's what's going on with this warning. Either way, his warning doesn't work. I don't know if you noticed that when Brian read it for us earlier. But, but how could it, right? How could it? Can you imagine being blind, then being healed and seeing for the first time, the Messiah heals you, and then going and not telling anyone about it? I mean, come on, Jesus. How could you ask these guys not to say something, right? Verse 31, they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And so the formerly blind guys go, well, I know he said not to, but he probably didn't mean it, right? <laughs> and, and they proceed to tell everyone that they can about the glory of Jesus, right? And I won't say a whole lot about this other than that I think it's really interesting that Jesus specifically commanded these guys not to tell people about him, and they just can't help themselves. They go and do it anyway. And yet he specifically commanded us to go and tell everyone about him. 
And oftentimes we're embarrassed, afraid, or ashamed. I really think we can learn a lot from these two blind men, and we can gain some inspiration from them as we watch their faith send them to go tell the good news about Jesus. And after he heals, him, heals them, Jesus and his disciples, they continue onward, but their trip is interrupted yet again. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. Okay, we aren't going to go into tons of depth into what demons are. Uh, we looked at that in a lot of depth last May and then again also last July. So if you're interested, you can go back and check out some of those messages. We explored things like spiritual beings, including demons. But the short version, just to kind of give some context for this today, is that these are evil spirits that seek to oppress humans, but also humans give their power over to these spirits just, uh, just like perhaps this person had through things like idolatry, fear, and sin. And while this story is brief and we aren't given a lot of details, it appears as though this man was oppressed by demonic power that was the thing that was preventing him from speaking. And I've, I've actually seen this happen before, temporarily at least, with people who are typically very comfortable speaking, right? But then they've been oppressed by some dark spiritual power and they can't say a word. They've been, they've been silenced, usually through fear that's then manifesting in them physically. But just as with this story, I've also seen demons cast away from the person who had been powerless to do anything about it. And it's incredible to watch. And it's all because of the powerful name and presence of Jesus Christ. And when those things happened, you know how we responded? We responded in faith. Our faith grew, right? We celebrated what God had done for that person. We were amazed at his mercy and at his power, and then our faith, it, it just grew and grew and grew. How did, how did these people respond in this story? And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Whoa. Okay, so the crowd is stunned doesn't actually say whether they believed in Jesus or not, but they were certainly amazed by him. See, he had that magnetic presence, right? They wanted to come near to him. They probably wanted to follow him to wherever he was going next so they could see what he was going to do. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were so self-righteous. They were so proud. They were so sure of their own observations. They said, oh, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They, they accused Jesus of being in cahoots with Satan. Think about that for a minute. Is there any greater insult that you could give to the God of the universe come to us in human flesh? Is there any bigger sign of unbelief? And what Matthew is trying to get our attention with is he's trying to show us that Jesus is polarizing. He just is. And why is that important for us today? Because 
we can easily get used to Jesus as a very nominal, nominal figure in our culture, right? We see him in pop culture. We see him in, in cartoons. We see him in some stupid, scandalous special on the History Channel, right? You guys seen those things? Anybody? And we can grow indifferent towards him because we just kind of get used to this idea of a guy named Jesus. But indifference is only possible if we ignore what he really said and did. If we encounter the true Jesus, if we see him for who he truly is, we cannot stand on the fence because the truth about Jesus pushes us off the edge one way or another. That's what Matthew's trying to do. He's trying to push us off the edge. He's putting the evidence in our face and inviting us to get off the fence and believe. And yet, there's so much standing in the way of us believing. So much standing in the way of faith. Just, just like the man who was oppressed by this evil spirit here, we are caught up in a spiritual war. And part of its purpose is to just erode faith. We constantly encounter barriers to faith. Let's think about a few of those together for just a moment. One is, I think, just a simple confidence in our understanding of the material world. That we see everything around us, everything material, and we go, this is all that there is. We neglect to recognize the supernatural world that is going on behind the scenes at all times. And when everything is strictly physical, strictly material, faith, if you even want to call it that, is basically just superstition, right? I think Mark Twain describes it well when he says, faith is believing what you know ain't real, okay? Don't you guys think that's funny? Faith is believing what you know ain't real. I think that's funny. It's, it's Santa Claus faith. It's Rabbit's foot faith, it's superstition. And while Mark Twain is super funny, he's wrong. <sighs> he's outright wrong. The, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that aren't seen. And so faith is believing what you know is real, but you can't see. Not believing what you know ain't real. <laughs> And, and so faith, the opposite of rabbit's foot faith, of, of superstition, is reflexive faith. Here's what I mean. It's, it's our default response in a given situation. When things are going well, we're trusting in God. When things are falling apart, we're trusting in God. He's our first priority. And you know, when we encounter an aspect of our life that's, that's out of control, it actually exposes where our faith truly lies. It exposes where we were placing our faith before that situation came to fruition. Is Jesus your rabbit's foot? Is he your superstition? Or, or is he where your faith truly lies? Is he your last resort or is he your first response when you lose your job? Where do you turn? Where's your faith? When your marriage is on the rocks, where, where are you going to turn? Where's your faith? When your health is, is deteriorating, where's your faith? 
we often don't stop to consider where our faith is in those moments, but it's the most important thing that we can do. Jairus did it when he lost his daughter. He, he placed his faith in Jesus. This woman did it when, when she lost her health. She placed her faith in Jesus. These men who had lost their sight and they placed their faith in Jesus. This man was mute. He had faith in Jesus. Now don't get me wrong. Just because we place our faith in Jesus doesn't mean that we don't try to address our circumstances practically too. I think just as easy as it is to neglect our need to identify where our faith lies in uh, difficult moments, we can also over-spiritualize everything to the point where we never act. It's like, oh, I'm just waiting around for Jesus to do his thing, right? Whereas in reality, action is a sign of faith. So you might need to go apply for a new job after you lost that job, right? You might need to seek marriage counseling and, and share with your community group what's going on so they can walk with you. You might need to find doctors and, and get tests done, but each one of those kinds of things is an occasion for faith in Jesus, not an occasion to place our faith in the outcome itself. We're trusting in Jesus no matter what the outcome is because he is dependable even though he's dynamic. And we're ultimately, we know, we're, we're in his hands. And when you place your faith in Jesus, you know what? Here's the amazing thing. The outcome, it can land either way because your faith isn't in the outcome. Your faith is, is in Jesus, and so you've been freed from a need to control that situation. You're in his hands. You've touched his garment, and so you're free. As I wrap up here, we've got some instructions for your community groups as you guys gather this week. I want to encourage you with this first kind of question. Think of a current situation in your life that is, in, is out of control. Where are you placing your faith? And then secondly, last month we spent some time doing the Acts prayer model, right? We were spending some time in prayer together as a community group. I want to encourage you, if you're able to, spend some time in the Listen, Learn, Live inductive Bible study. It's something that we taught through Disciple Equip. And I'll send out instructions for that and remind you guys of how that works uh, later on this week, probably tomorrow, as we prepare for that. I'm going to pray, and we'll respond to God together now. Father, we thank you for inspiring Matthew to capture these stories so that we could see Jesus more clearly. We pray that that would happen, that we would see the true Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his polarizing effect. God, we pray that that it would have the effect of magnetism, as we talked about, that, it would, that as we see the real Jesus, we would be drawn to him, so much so that it wouldn't just affect our salvation, but it would affect our every single moment of every single day as we place our trust in you, Jesus. We ask for your spirit to fill us and to, to do this work of transformation in us. It's in Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.